Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today's Friday, May 19th, 2023. Joining me for today's podcast are John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. Stuart Walpin, who's been on the field at Yankee Stadium. I did not know about that when we were chatting uh, offline. Who writes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other fine publications. And Rob Pregorero who writes about technology developments at PC Mag, Fast Company, and other publications. Folks, how are you all today on this fine Friday? Good, oh, good. very good. Oh, okay, good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'd, that's I'd good. like to know, I've been on the field at RFK Stadium and Nationals Park, so I got that going for me, which is nice. Do you really want to tell people that? I mean, RFK, you know, the, who knows what kind of contamination was in the grass, but it was still cool <laughs> You know. When I think of RFK, I think I have image, uh, imagery, images in my mind about Joe Theismann getting his leg broken at that famous Monday night game. Right. I'll never forget that. LT. Yeah. I, think I can't, you know what? You know what's crazy? Yeah. I can't imagine. Can you imagine that to that Monday night game being broadcast today in high definition 4K? I mean, ABC got a lot of flack, if you recall, for playing it over and over again, and you can kind of see the bone sticking out of the leg. The agony I of can the imagine agony. today what the what the uh, images that would get generated. I actually have a football signed by uh, Joe on the shelf back there. He was, yeah, he was I, a guest at some event uh, Earthlink hosted Earthlink. at Internet World in New York in like 1998. Did you still have a dial-up modem in a box someplace in the back? Uh, hey, I have a line phone on the bookshelf back there in fact yeah he's actually a very nice guy even though he's like a mortal enemy of my favorite team but i i spent like an <laughs> evening with him just chatting and he was he was like a nice guy and i'm like oh well yeah. all these years i didn't like you and yet <laughs> yeah, we should do a podcast famous people we know or we we've yeah. kind of bumped into that would be an interesting podcast i'd love to see someone actually Stuart, you've probably met a lot of brush brush with history yeah i mean i've yeah. met a lot of geniuses because i write the bios for the Consumer Technology Hall of Fame. So it's not only met them, but I've interviewed them. So, you know, I, my, my favorite is Ray Dolby. I interviewed him oh, um, ostensibly because most people don't know this. They know him for noise canceling, but they don't know that he is the co-holder of all the original videotape recording patents. And so I was doing a history of the video, the history of videotape, and Dolby granted me 30 minutes with him and nobody had ever asked him about this before. So I got him on the phone for an hour and a half talking about something that nobody had ever really asked him about for. So that was lots of fun. You know, you know what's fascinating, and I think, and we got to get into the podcast, is when you yeah. meet someone famous and, and you're talking to them privately and their on-screen per persona is different from their one-on-one -on -one persona. And that doesn't happen to everyone, but I've had some ex interesting experiences with the uh, mostly in the technology field of people saying, boy, this person's completely unlike what they're really like when the camera is on, you know, Rob is like that, by the way, if you know, Rob, <laughs> you know, you'd say you never want to hang out with Rob because he's just so obnoxious and snarky, snarky. That, yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word. All right. Let's get the ball rolling here. Uh, let us talk about, uh, this is going to be a fun topic. Uh, the Supreme court had some rulings with Twitter uh, um, that uh, held for Twitter and Facebook and Google uh, earlier in the week. Um, I know we're going to 
the spirit opinions. Um, I'm going to start with Rob because uh, actually he did. He actually did read the ruling. I haven't read the ruling. I've read probably eight or nine articles on it, uh, including this morning's Wall Street Journal um, report on it. So um, that, that tends to uh, always be interesting when, when a major publication weighs in on an issue. But Rob, let's get your perspective first, and then we'll go to John. So it's been interesting both to read the ruling and to read the coverage of it. So the, the case itself here is about a, a mass murder committed by a zealot for the ISIS terrorist death cult in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, New Year's Eve 2019, I think. And could you say that social platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Google, were in some way aiding and abetting the commission of this crime because they did not kick ISIS off their platforms when they, I guess, first knew about it. And in some cases, their automated recommendation and in the case of YouTube, revenue sharing systems provided some assistance to said terrorist death cult. And so in this Supreme Court opinion, unanimous, written by Justice Clarence Thomas, they essentially say that there is no case here. It's interesting because it's being depicted as all about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Right. It's the law that says social platforms cannot be held responsible for what their users post. The users are held responsible for that, even if they actively, aggressively moderate content. The ruling doesn't mention CDA 230 at all. Instead, Justice Thomas writes that under any reasonable definition of aiding and abetting, you can't say that lax moderation or systems running automatically meant that Twitter, Facebook, and Google were in league with ISIS or trying to make anything happen. There was a line in the ruling where, um, yes, there are no allegations that defendants treated ISIS any differently than the, from anyone else. Rather, defendants' relationship with ISIS and its supporters appears to have been the same as their relationship with their billion-plus other users, arm's length, passive, and largely indifferent. So it's not like <laughs> Justice Thomas is saying, these companies are great. Bang up job. Well done. But under this law that was brought up, the uh, justice for uh, the initial abbreviation for it is JASTA, uh, 2016 statute saying that you can bring a civil lawsuit against companies if you're a victim of a recognized government defined terrorist group, if they aided and abetted the commission of a terrorist act. This case doesn't meet that standard. So there, there's nothing here. The case shouldn't have been brought. Uh, and so the court held unanimously that, you know, yes, Twitter is off the hook. Google is off the hook. And CDA 230 never entered the discussion. So it's a case where if that law had never been passed, you would have the exact same ruling. So my question for John, and let's congratulate John because he just passed the bar and he's not going to be, you know, actually uh, going to be presenting to the Supreme Court at some point in the future. That's just a joke. In case the journalism thing doesn't work out, could have a fallback plan. That's that's a fallback plan. But the interesting thing to me, it was a 9-0 ruling, if I'm not, if I'm not yep. mistaken. And with this Supreme Court, the composition of this Supreme Court, when something's 9-0, that kind of grabs my attention. Even before you read the, the, to me, which is a very matter of fact statement of what the facts were and the way they applied the law. And I, and I think it is interesting that 230 was not invoked. Um, but anyway, there's always two sides to every coin. John, your thoughts? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a, a, a Stuart here. I'm gonna uh, <laughs> what I want to point out is how ignorant 
the Supreme Court justices are of how this technology works. So that citation that Rob just picked out about it being passive is, of course, completely false and erroneous and has almost never been true. Maybe with Archie and Gopher, that might have been true, but it hasn't been true with any of those services, right? They are actively, actively every minute being tweaked. Google's search engine itself, several hundred times a day, that algorithm is tweaked. And it's intentionally tweaked. It's not accidentally tweaked or passively tweaked. It's tweaked to do specific, very specific things. And we know that, I mean, I'll read you some of Justice Thomas's <laughs> misunderstanding of this. Once the platform and sorting tool algorithms were up and running, defendants, that's Facebook, Google, and Twitter, at most, allegedly stood back and watched. Yes. They are not alleged to have taken any further action with respect to ISIS. Well, that's just false, right? That's just on its face, absolutely false, because we know that they, tr they judge those algorithms and see the traffic that's happening in real time and tweak them in real time. So they're seeing how much traffic they're getting from these. It's just like having Donald Trump on your service, right? Look, it's just too much money. Could they shut it down any I minute? I don't think yeah, is a traffic could. magnet for has ever it been. Absolutely is. In these, in these places, we're all looking at these videos. You should see the numbers. They're huge when they put those videos up. So mm -hmm. they knew exactly what they were doing. And this idea that it was passive, uh, that's just ridiculous. Now, to, to Rob's point and to Justice Thomas goes on and on and on about this, aiding and abetting is really vague. And there's like maybe two pages of, we don't know what it means, but that's kind of the Supreme Court's job, right? They put this in the law, is this aiding and abetting? So they establish by precedent or whatnot, whether it is or not. They set the bar really high. His claim is it's got to be this specific act, mm -hmm. not general spying or general terrorism. It's got to be this very specific act. I don't know, you know, in any espionage case, whether you could even cite this, the kid who's in jail right now and trying to get out of jail uh, on bail, <laughs> which he probably shouldn't. Um, you know, that's there's no specific act that that would be tied to, right? If he sent it to through discord to one of these foreign governments and so they set the bar really high i think they just like bailed on this it was like 38 pages of we don't want to have anything to do with this <laughs> it was, yeah it was unanimous and i think for different reasons they didn't want to have anything to do with it you know on each of their parts but stewart's gonna say you know look they don't understand the technology well, so Stuart, you've heard from Justice Pegorero and Justice Quain here. <laughs> uh, how do you weigh in? Um, well, I have a couple of thoughts. The first thought is that given that the Supreme Court admitted they didn't know what the hell they were talking about, they're the last people I want making law on this. <laughs> um, so, it, and not that I think Congress is in a better position to make law, but but all the laws that they're citing are old. <laughs> Section 230 is from 1996. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as any of these social. The well, I think, was the biggest social media platform in 1996. There simply wasn't. Section 230 simply was not written to address any of the issues that we have now. And so the law concerning people, I'm, I always go back to things that you post on a, a bulletin board at a supermarket. Who has 
responsibility over what's posted there. Can a criminal go up there and post something on a bulletin board on a supermarket and the supermarket, for instance, if you go into a supermarket and you post that said, I would like to have this person killed, I'll give you $5,000 for doing it. If the crime is committed, is the supermarket responsible for that? Yeah, I don't. I'm not a lawyer, but I certainly don't want the Supreme Court deciding that. I want legislators and lawmakers deciding that. Um, and so the problem here isn't that whether or not the Supreme Court made a right decision or a wrong decision. The problem is that the Congress has made no decision in third almost thirty years concerning a topic that is just going to get worse, not better. Right. No, and and I can't disagree with that. Um, element of the of the argument i think you know once we're not going to talk about ai this week because my eyes will my head will explode (laughs) but but the reality is an area where the government has to act is ai and you know i i i (laughs) the only thing i'll say is that i'm frightened of the kind of video content that's going to appear over the next six months or nine months as we run up to the election on both sides. This is not a political yep. discussion. There's going to be crazy stuff out here that it'll be a lot of great fodder for podca- podcasts. So I sh- maybe I should be happy in that regard. But I think, you know, the government just has a history of being behind the eight ball every time when something happens from a technology standpoint. Not just not just the Internet, but there's many, many examples you can cite over the last hundred years that they just they're just a very reactive organization. You know, if I could call the, the, the Congress a, an organization. But it's scary. So anyway, the other other thing about this is not only are they late, they aren't even they can't project anywhere beyond where they are. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 doesn't mention the Internet. Yes. The Section 230 is an add on. No, that's not, that's ironic. That is ironic. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, yeah. let's get let's get to the next topic because this is I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again in the not too distant future. Uh, this will be a fun topic to talk about as well, uh, Stuart. I'll let you kick this off, but uh, this whole notion around data privacy and security in the connected home category that I follow very closely, Parks Associates, a venerable um, uh, research firm that I've done some actually some work for. Uh, they did a terrific white paper. I was at a chance to glance at it, and I know that you've uh, you've read it, uh, Stuart. Mm-hmm. But let's you know the only thing I'll say about this up front is that what's shocking to me as people get more excited about the smart home, the average home now has 15, 20, 25 connected devices in their home. People are so excited about getting things connected that their excitement and there's very levels of that, by the way, we won't get into that. But the notion of connecting your devices in your smart home, whether it's your smart appliance, which are increasingly becoming more popular, lighting, your home security system with with connected cameras, that people are so excited about that, they really think that the security aspect and data uh, privacy elements are not as important. And there's all kinds of goofy things people can do when they hack your home network and they can get into your home. But as as, as a setup, Give me your perspective, Stuart, and what's you, how you come at this. Well, I mean, this is online privacy has been an issue ever since the Snowden uh, leaks a decade ago. And the industry has been coping with this, um, with all the massive data leaks and where all this is coming from. But this study specifically studied the whole smart home issue and how concerned consumers were about their data security and privacy when they connect a device. Now, you mentioned the, the study found that six that Internet homes own 16.1 connected devices 
And the growing, uh, the biggest growing sector of that is video cameras, security cameras, both doorbell cams and indoor cameras. Right. But even though people are buying these, and I think the figure was that um, 30 million homes now have video cameras. 70, uh, almost three quarters of the people surveyed had either cons- had major concerns about privacy in terms of what the companies are doing with the data they're collected, how it's collected, who they're sharing it with, all the worries that the European law, and I'm dyslexic, so GDPR, I think. European, uh, European um, That 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 the U.S. is talking about, U.S. lawmakers have failed to follow through on living into the industry to sort of try and individual companies try to reassure their consumers. The the most interesting little couple of tidbits that I found really interesting in there is that nearly half of the people surveyed in Internet connected homes had suffered identity theft which is an astoundingly high number. And and I define that completely credible because I suffered it in 2021. And I'm about as careful and as knowledgeable about this as it comes. And even I got somehow got, got, got uh, hacked into. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I found interesting was that the number of health-related devices grew in 2021 and shrunk in 2022, which indicates to me that people are even more concerned about their health data right. um, uh, being hacked. And so few, instead of that area growing, which everybody on this panel would have expected, yeah, we want home health you know, monitoring and that sort of thing. Apparently, the industry is not growing, and, and it, they didn't make a one-to-one correlation. But the fact that Almost three quarters of the people who are afraid their data being hacked has certainly got to be a big piece of that. Sure, sure. And, and Rob, the, the interesting thing point that Stuart made with this explosive growth with security cameras specifically, you know, I I believe I, I would never put an indoor security camera in my home. Now, I have a condo. I don't have a you know property outside. Um, I mean, I don't have a backyard or anything like that. That would that would it would be nice to have outdoor security cameras. I don't need it. <laughs> But I just don't trust any company with my video material. I mean, I have a, a, a smart door, um, a smart uh, doorbell. I have a, a ring, and uh, you know they claim that the content's encrypted. I have their cloud service, but it only takes one breach, and all of a sudden you're like, "What the heck?" Now I don't really worry about it too much because it's out. You know, it's out. It, it faces my common hallway, so it's not a big issue with me. You know, it's the very reason why I wouldn't put a webcam inside my home because God knows my, what would happen if that got compromised. A lot of these webcam security camera, not webcam, but security camera companies um, have dubious backgrounds. For, when I say dubious backgrounds. You're making me nervous already. <laughs> and I know you have a privacy shutter on everything in your house. But let's talk about that in a little bit more detail because I think that is a big issue that people just don't have an appreciation for just because a company says, oh, you're comp- uh, we, we encrypt your content and, you know, we, we, we care about your privacy. There's lots of things sometimes that falls through. Yeah. Um, the, the useful phrase to think about here is attack surface. When you add this connected device, how much more does it give a potential attacker to play with? Uh, what, what data can they get access to? And, yeah, obviously, if it's a camera that's always on, there are, you know, various unpleasant possibilities and certainly if it's indoors you know connected baby monitors 
we we did not have i mean they weren't really quite invented you know 12 years ago but uh we we're not remotely tempted to buy any of the ones out there also we, it's a small house kids crying especially the baby cams that the default password is password yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, and I know that there are efforts to like the the Matter Smart Home standard, which we talked about much on this podcast, is supposed to have various baseline and um, security yeah, levels. Yeah, encryption, passwords, things that must be done to get this standard. Uh, the government is working on a sort of label that would also get that across as well. But yeah, a lot of it is. You know, it can be tempting to put this connected device here or that. And I have been very much a late adopter. We have a total of four connected light bulbs. And um, uh, yeah, that's it. You know, I should probably look at replacing some of these thermostats, but we got plenty of other house projects to do first. Well, it just takes one breach and then really bad things happen. And as you know, the consequences for the company that has the breach generally is like, a oh, Bad company. Don't yeah, do that right. again. You know? right. yeah. If you're really unlucky, the Federal Trade Commission will take an interest. They'll subject you to 20 years of monitoring and you will have some yeah. fine. But the fines it can levy are not necessarily that much. You know, mm -hmm. they, the FTC did sock Facebook to the tune of $5 billion, but Facebook could more than afford to cover that. Yes. John, your thoughts? Uh, unfortunately, I have, uh, I don't even want to tell you. How many devices <laughs> I have uh, hanging off the network? Uh, you know, because it, it's it. Look, it's my job, and I, I just tested. Yeah. I just tested nine different home security cameras, um, and I added them to the array of cameras that I already have in different places. Um, and I, I ran out of places to point them. I started pointing them at the street in New York because I just had no place <laughs> else to look. <laughs> um, so I'm well, you know, definitely sensitive to the, the issue of somebody hacking into them and any of the other devices. And that, you know, it has been historically, there was a wave of, there was at least uh, two companies whose, whose uh, chips were being used commonly in a lot of these very inexpensive mm -hmm. cameras and they were hacked into. So that gave access to hundreds of thousands of cameras suddenly um so there have been incidents like that um but it you know it's a trade-off of security for the home people you know uh porch pirates and things like that versus you know somebody hacking into your video so i think people have the, the meter has gone the other way and it's gone to okay too much too much theft going on and they're more worried about that than anything else and so they're not as concerned about cameras one one interesting Thing that I, I did uh, test was Roku, which is obviously, you know, the people responsible for streaming video in the home basically made it, made Netflix what it is today. Um, they are now pushing to get into the smart home arena. Yes. And they have a series of cameras that are actually, and devices made by somebody else, and I won't say who it is, but, mm -hmm. um, and what their, their pitch is, of course, is that it's a channel on your Roku. Yeah home screen right so i've yeah. got cameras now that i just go in and it's like another channel and i can just take a look at all the cameras that are on it it's great it's really convenient but that made people so nervous a few years ago if you remember tv manufacturers used to put cameras in their tvs and they took them out right it freaked people out they just it was like i know i could do skype this way but uh, i'm not really comfortable so they took the cameras out. Well, this is sort of an effect putting it back in. And I wonder if now attitudes have changed enough that they 
that people will accept it or will they think that that's a little kind of creepy too? And uh, you know, Roku example you point out is interesting because you know Roku, uh, the, the living room is is the central place where people huddle in the fa most right. families huddle. And when you think about it, and that's generally by the way where the largest screen in the home is. You know, it, it, not to say that people don't have large flat panels in their in their bedrooms, but for the most part, your biggest um, TV TV is going to be in the living room. And there are a number of security companies that have kind of glommed on top of that, saying it's a great kind of a central security location to view multiple cameras. Right. Um, the, uh, the the question really is from a Roku perspective, um, and they, you know, they champion privacy and security. Um, I probably know uh, no less voraciously than other companies. But, you know, when you start comprehending home security into your value proposition, you know, the, the privacy takes a whole, you know, becomes exponentially more important and you have to believe there be, you know there better be some really profound mechanisms integrated in their offering regardless of the and they're, and they're not as you know they're not building their cameras or they're partnering with somebody else on their camera solutions will they have will they will some will customers somehow push back you know roku entertainment video that's one thing do i really want to trust you know, my, the privacy in my home to a company that's really an entertainment company, you know? So I don't know how that, I don't know how that translates. I, I understand the marketing strategy that Roku is pursuing, but I, I just wonder if there's a, if there's some pushback in the minds of consumers, you know? Well, it's, it's funny that you, it's funny that you yeah. should mention it because I was speaking to the Roku had an event a couple of weeks ago or last week, whenever it was. And I, I asked the, the Roku representative about that very topic, you know, brand uh, identification and, and uh, reliability. And what he kept telling me is that the way that they're going to push this brand is they're going to be cheaper than everybody. And I said, that doesn't make me feel any better. That might make me feel worse considering some of the security issues that I don't want to buy something cheap for security. That's, that, that's the last place I want to skimp and save. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting you just said that because the better answer might have been yeah. you were going to be actually a little bit more expensive, but we're going to have the best security. Right. The exactly right. Well, I'm looking at Roku's site. Like the right. first thing I want to know is what's your vulnerability disclosure policy? If I come to them with a bug report of a security flaw, what is the process through which I submit? It's, you know, how do I know you're not going to sue me for <laughs> embarrassing you uh, <laughs> if you don't have a, a some kind of VDP out there, you're not serious about security. Right. Uh, and so the fact that, yeah, and for that matter, I'd, I'd want to know, like, do you have somebody red teaming each new release? What's your, um, you know, do you pay bug, bat bug bounties? And their site, yeah, it's not reassuring me as a potential customer of this theoretical TV that I could plug into a uh, Roku branded security camera. Right. And they're, they're going to, I mean, they just started rolling this out. We'll see. I mean, the only security that for me is a physical shutter. And of all the cameras I tested and systems I tested, the only one was Arlo's camera that had a physical shutter on it. Nice. And they, they, and that's new for them that not all their cameras do it, but they should all do it. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's the only way I can actually block it up, which is why people have tape all over their computers and stuff because, <laughs> you know, duh. I think Lenovo is that the only one that has a physical shutter on the camera? I mean, it's HP A lot of companies are doing that on their their their, their, their PC displays and monitors. They have a privacy shutter built right. in. But let's get to the next topic because I want to make sure we hit this one. This is going to be an interesting one. 
Um, Hyundai and which I, I have it misspelled. Shame on me. Uh, Hyundai and, and Kia agreed to a two hundred million dollar settlement over rampant car thefts. Essentially, the accus not the act. Well, the, yes, the assertion was that their cars um, don't have the technology that other brands have that you know would mitigate car theft. And and so they they agreed to a two hundred million dollar settlement. I think there was a software upgrade. It's always software upgrades will help solve the problem. Kind of surprising that they didn't um, know that before, but controversial question I want to ask is that, you know, with, with the crime that's occurring in many of the major cities across the country, because the, the, this case has been cited by a lot, a lot of local cities saying, hey, you know what, it's not because we have a crime problem in Philadelphia or a crime problem in, in, in Boston, but it's because the car manufacturers on these particular two brands had bad capabilities. And it's kind of like throwing the responsibility off the, the, the locality and on to the car manufacturers. So I, I, you know, I get the settlement piece, but I also get, I wonder if there's some dodging going on. So Stuart, what's your thoughts on it? You think I'm crazy or you think that? The, well, the, the problem with getting my opinion on this is that I haven't owned a car in 40 years. <laughs> and the last time I actually drove one was April. And the time before that, I have no memory of when I drove one. Um, but having having read up on this, uh, just a little bit in preparation for this, I mean, listen, when, when I rent a car, I'm always nervous about how is this keeping anybody else from taking this car away? And I'm always making sure that I park it when I go into something that I can see it while, while whatever it is I'm doing, because I have no idea how this car is actually secure. And reading on this, apparently Kia and Hyundai both knew this is going back yeah. about six or seven years, apparently. Yeah. And um, this all written came out of a, a TikTok challenge. Yes. And somebody on TikTok said, oh, we know how you can steal, steal a car or a Kia. Here's a YouTube video and here's how to do it. And it's and it's like apparently what they were lacking with something called, and, and John can correct me on this, an yeah. immobilization technology that somehow keeps a car from getting stolen. I don't know how it works, but on a broader scale, the fact that they knew that this was a problem, which is what the basis of this suit was, it wasn't right. like they didn't know about it. They knew, but they just didn't act upon it. They didn't actively jump, you know, going back to the first topic on the, uh, on, on the, on the Twitter and Google, they knew this was a problem and just didn't do anything about it. Right. Um, yeah. And so this is a big issue in technology in general with AI or with social media is that companies know the danger and don't act upon it because it will cost them money to do so, even if it costs them money later in some sort of funds, because the $200 million is probably less than they would have had to have spent in actually implementing the technology to begin with. So this is just a, um, this sort of issue, the Google issue, AI going to Congress and going, oh, please regulate us. This is just the rampant problem of companies not wanting to take responsibility for doing, I guess, um, the right thing. Well, yeah. Uh, so, so John, yeah, John, you're our, our, our resident car expert. Um, right. So I, I, I did report on this a couple of months ago and I wrote about it because I was doing stories about how you can hack into cars and just explain to people how you can break into cars and you can do, you can break into all these other cars too. This is not a, a an unusual thing in a way, but this was, 
this issue was this was the old fashioned way to steal a car. That's all this was about. Right. <laughs> and, and they all the news reports failed to mention. I don't think a single and even the outlets we write for. I don't think any of them mentioned. Oh, by the way, you have to smash a window and break physically break into the car to steal the car. I mean, this wasn't that TikTok. And, you know, so you you had to break into the car and then you peeled the thing off the steering column like the old fashioned way. Right, and right. then you stuck a USB key into the place where you turn the key in, you know, in the 70s, you stuck a screwdriver. Screwdriver. Yes. Not, not any different. Right. And and Hyundai and Kia are also not the only automakers who have this issue. There are other automakers that have the issue. Not a big deal. What, what precipitated all this is YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, because those videos are rampant out there. And I looked at maybe six or seven. This is just like the last time I checked was about 30 days ago. There are all sorts of videos out there explaining how to do it. Step-by-step -step instructions on how to steal these cars. It's ridiculous. Right. So it's like, you know, it's, it does come back to that. We mentioned 230 before, even though it wasn't part of the Supreme Court just uh, judgment. But this is like, it's a free-for-all, right? You can right. basically do, the only laws are about child trafficking and, and prostitution. Everything else is like free game pretty much. And right. so these TikTok videos, I mean, not to defend, you know, Hyundai and Kia, they um, definitely had a security issue, but they'd already been offering software upgrades and the other cars can't physically do it. So you need to put one of those bars from the that old 80s oh, the club you put the, the club, club on the club. So you have to do that's what you have to do on a few of these cars but there are other other cars out there that are just as easy to break into in a way but so it's just a weird it was this two issues one was should you like have step-by-step -step burglary instructions on tiktok and youtube i mean it's still on youtube you can find these right now you know go out on youtube and you can find them so I, isn't that should that be the case i don't know and uh, I think to your point, the original one, the crime. So in Wisconsin, I think I talked to a government representative there and they saw when these TikTok videos started, they saw automobile thefts double in a year, double. I mean, it was just so that's why they were part of that lawsuit. They were like, come on, let's do something about this. Yeah, they, so didn't sue, they didn't sue YouTube. You know, they didn't sue Google. They didn't sue. Uh, so I don't know. So, Rob, what happens, take us home on this, what happens when TikTok does a video on how to build a nuclear weapon? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can look up those, that in the library. I do wonder, Jake, <laughs> how much of the For You page on TikTok is now nothing but car theft? Now that yeah, I mean, you're interested in that subject. It's like when I when you write about it, we're, I, I try to be careful about it. And, and some places will, you know, not let me say specific details about something, even in describing, you know, a news story, because we don't want to encourage people to do this. Do it, right. Apparently, well, as we know, Twitter and YouTube, ah, whatever, maybe it doesn't really matter. Yes. Well, Rob, <laughs> take, take us home. Your thoughts on this? Yeah. You know, if <laughs> to the younger folks watching this, if you're looking for something fun to do on TikTok, you know, try check out book talk or cooking talk and instead of like <laughs> trying to find ways to do something that is a crime and that can land you in jail right well and and the tiktok thing you know and again this was not i, I think these are, that's a relevant point there's lots of crazy crap that goes on in tiktok i mean stealing a car obviously is it still a felony i guess it's a felony well not today who knows if it's a felony pretty sure it's still a felony <laughs> anyway i, I would think it's unless, a felony. unless they use cars as 
worth as little as <laughs> perhaps the 17 year old one in my driveway. Yeah, but the point I'm making, there's a lot of other crazy TikTok challenges go on, some kind of goofy, right. you know, uh, but other stuff that could kill you, that, yeah. that could be dangerous in some of the things that right. that uh, they uh, that the, the, cinnamon the, young, the yeah. youngsters yeah. of our audience likes to watch, which is I know I have a huge young audience on this. On this <laughs> really crushing with Gen Z, huh? Yeah, exactly. It was really a problem. I mean, I it, it truly was a problem. It has been because I even I was in Scottsdale a few months ago, and I went through the parking lot in a park to go for a run. And when I came back, this Kia car that was parked there. The window was broken. Somebody had tried to break in and there was a park ranger trying to figure out what's going on. They didn't take the car, but they tried in, you know, 20 minutes. So, yeah, crazy, scary, scary stuff. Well, guys, listen, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please make sure the Smart Tech Check podcast is part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast or use these on screen QR codes to connect with me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mark being a tech guy. And until next time, have a great week. And thanks guys for participating. Mm -hmm.